0: The Gold Standard of Paranormal Radio. And now, here's Gene
1: Steinberg. You know, a few minutes before this episode of the Paracast began, I had a little lunch, so I decided to splurge. Instead of having something at home, I went to a fast food outfit called Carl's Jr. In some parts of the country, in the U.S., it's called Hardee's. Same ownership, same basic restaurant. And they have something called the Beyond Burger. I splurge. The Beyond Burger means it's not meat. It's based on plant protein. And no fries or anything like that, just a sandwich. Brought it back home. And I tried it. It's a fairly close approximation of a grilled hamburger. Pretty close. Mrs. Steinberg tasted it and said, "I, I don't like meat that much anyway. But when I was thinking about this, very grisly, this green plant protein it was made from and still emulates a real hamburger, I was thinking here of a famous phrase from a movie, and Green is people. Well, that fell. Charlton like Heston, right? No, 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 hold it. That was Edward G. Robinson, his final movie, where he was telling the Charlton Heston character and green as people, people dying
2: you know it's a, it's as good of a, a punchline is as, as to serve humans
3: i like the omega man better
1: well you see what's happening here also when i talk about beyond burger there's also something called the impossible burger and that's a similar kind of product non-meat that will become a burger king whopper and the funny thing is here, according to what we hear, if you believe what's in the press, they can't make enough of these things. A lot of people out there are happy to have a fake hamburger as opposed to the real thing. We're getting quite a bit of that up here uh,
2: at an uh, outlet called A&W that's uh, really doing a lot to have uh, high quality ingredients with the least amount of chemicals and byproducts in it too so they started something up here very similar to that and it's uh, it's doing very well too i think christopher o'brien would be happy about that uh, after writing stalking the herd which by the way i just picked up uh, on sale because uh, i just have to buy things on sale but uh, excellent book there too so you know i hope that we can get chris back on in the future to talk about that again too fabulous stuff
1: It is, and after you read that, you will never, ever want to eat a meat product again. Never. But I don't know why we're talking about this. Oh, we have Don Ecker here, and he's an old-fashioned, salt-of-the-earth American, a full-fledged curmudgeon. And we wanted to get some reactions to him about some of the things going on. But first, of course, we all knew Stanton Friedman, you and I, Don. I met him a zillion times at conventions. Not that we were close friends, but we were convention friends, if you know what that means. And occasionally in print, I would disagree with him. What about you, Don?
3: Oh yeah. And when I was the director of research for UFO magazine, my wife, who was the editor in chief and publisher, I mean, we uh, went back all the way to the beginning with Stanton Friedman. I first. Encountered Stanton probably about 1987, 88, just about the same time that Bill Moore and Jamie Shandera released the MJ12 documents. I can remember sitting because after I, I bought my first computer, and I, I've told this story a million times, I had a 300 baud modem okay, on my computer. Now, I could literally, (laughs) when I was downloading something, watch the pixels on the screen being developed and made. And I downloaded the entire MJ-12 paper, and I was reading it as my computer slowly crawled along and got it. But Stanton was one of those guys that at the time, was one of the ufologists whose name was in lights. Uh, Stanton Friedman, you know, people like William Moore at the time, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, all these people were at the very front of the UFO movement. I met Stanton at a conference, and a very congenial fellow, very, very set in his uh, belief system. I can remember the first time I ever saw him pull out his famous sheaf of redacted documents going through them. And and I think he probably used that right up until the end of his life at every conference he ever attended. Excuse me, no, he
1: memorized it. He didn't have to bring it each time.
3: Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> hey, look, uh, there weren't that many words that were visible. So I can believe he memorized it. But well, he, he was somebody that, that did a lot of work. He paved a lot of pathways. Uh, uh, Friedman was, uh, was a very notable gentleman.
2: Oh, absolutely. And uh, it, it took him a long time to admit that the MJ-12 documents, most of them seem to have been fabricated somehow.
3: I don't ever recall Stanton saying that. Yeah, he still said that there was at least one
2: that was genuine, but I think he uh, finally had to concede that it looked like there was, uh, that most of them had had been somehow fabricated. But still, we don't know who fabricated them or why. And it seems like, and, and you might have some comment on this, whoever did that seemed to have some kind of inside knowledge Uh, To a fairly deep degree, maybe, perhaps not to the detail of all the formatting that people like Kevin Randall have gone into, but uh, still, it wasn't
3: just you know some guy off the street. Look, when I looked at that MJ12, or yeah, the uh, the MJ12 document, I looked at it wearing my detective hat, and I asked myself a series of questions about that. Number one. Okay, at that time. Okay, and we're talking about 83, 84. Who the hell knew who Jamie Shandera was? Now, why do I even mention that? Because it was Jamie Shandera that received that undeveloped 35 millimeter film in an envelope addressed to Chandra at his home. Okay, nobody knew who Jamie Shandera was. As far as UFO research, who did know who Jamie Shandaro was? Bill Moore did. And who was working covertly behind the scenes, hand in glove, with various military and intelligence assets? Who? Dodie. Bill Moore. Oh, right. Moore, too, sure. Okay. And what was Doty doing then? Well, Doty was, uh, who the hell knows what uh, Richard Doty was doing? But who was more working with and agreeing to do things for those same military intelligence assets? Perhaps Doty. Now, if somebody were to come up to me and say, Don, where do you think those documents emanated from? I would tell them, well, I don't know. There's no way I can know, but my suspicion says that came from Bill Moore. In other words, I think he had enough information, was a, certainly a sharp, smart, intuitive man, had contacts that could have shown him formatting and everything going back all the way to 1947 or before. He would have known that the right words to use, the right people to place in that document, etc. The document itself, well, I, I, I don't believe, and I haven't for many years, that that document is real. I just don't believe it. It's too convenient. But does that say that I don't think back then that there might have been something very similar? Let's break.
1: Let's break that. More on NJ12. With Gene and Randall, you're in the Paracast. We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive Paracast things that you can buy. We've got like, I guess, 60 or so different items. And entails T-shirts, sleeves for notebook computers, iPad cases, mouse pads, the Paracast jumbo tote bag... stuff for women, stuff for men. We have all sorts of sizes, like small up to X large. A lot of good stuff. That's the swag from the PowerCast. You go to store.thepowercast.com, stop by and take a shopping tour. The reviews for Extendivite
4: are amazing. Here are some from Amazon by Christine, great for heart palpitations. By Ann, before I started using this product, every afternoon, my ankles and my hands would be swollen. That doesn't happen anymore. So if that part of their advertising is true, I have to assume that the rest of it is also. Not to mention that when I had my yearly blood test, only a few weeks after beginning to use this product, my cholesterol had dropped over 30 points. I'm going to continue to take it. By Croc, I love this product. It really works. By Brad, works great. Thank you. Tell us your story. Get your ExtendoVite today. To order, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit heartprop.com. Extend your life
5: with
6: ExtendoVite.
4: This is
7: George Dory from Coast to Coast AM and History Channel's Ancient Aliens. We support the amazing energy, nutrition, and skincare products from Jeunesse. Jeunesse products are designed by leading doctors in their field with natural ingredients and even stem cell technology. These products help your body perform and look better. Shop Jeunesse at GCNLife.com or call 1-844-443-6637. GCNLife.com or 844-443-6637.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: So we have Don Ecker of Dark Matters joining us, and we're talking about MJ-12, the original MJ-12. Now, before you go on with that, Don... No less than Kevin Randall, who obviously also has military experience, said that there were deficiencies in the formatting, that it was close, but no cigar. There were deficiencies, forgetting about the content which you can go into and the names of people who were put in there. But that's another aspect. Also, William Moore confessed being connected with intelligence at one of the MUFON conventions, after which, of course, he was ostracized.
3: Don. Yeah, that's right. That was July of nineteen eighty-nine in Las Vegas. What's your what's your question, Gene?
1: I just wanted you to continue talking about it. The point being here is that maybe he and he was able to emulate the formatting, but not well enough. But what was on it? I thought you were going to comment on that.
3: Well, yeah, there was quite a bit on it. Now look, I am not a document expert. I am not a document guy. I, of course, am really familiar with the MJ-12 document. I'm familiar with a lot of other government documents, but when it comes to the actual formatting and and what have you, hey, I've seen how young GIs that are clerks and typist and what have you. I, I've seen them screw stuff up all the time. Uh, when it comes to the formatting, uh, I'm not going to get too hung up on that, but what that document stated was that there was the crash, of parent extraterrestrial vehicle outside of Roswell, New Mexico in very early July, 1947, uh, right around the 4th of July. And one of the primary individuals involved in that was Jesse Major, then Major Jesse Martell. Now, he was a World War II veteran. Uh, He was the intelligence officer there at the time. And uh, a rancher, I mean everybody knows the the basics of the story. A rancher came into town, had a bunch of debris that he had picked up from his uh, pasture, showed it to the sheriff. The sheriff got in touch with the base, thought there might have been possibly a uh, missing military aircraft. And uh, Marcel, Jesse Marcel went out uh, along with, uh, another guy who was the counterintelligence officer on the, on the base at that time that later lied about even being there with Marcel when he tried to uh, basically deny the entire story. Now, Marcel got out there and, and his buddy, and I can't think of his name right offhand, they got out there and they saw this, according to Marcel, very large debris field. There was a lot of debris. And as they were walking through it, Marcel picked up some of the debris later in an interview. He said, well, he said, I I didn't know what this stuff was. He said, uh, I tried to, uh, hit it with a, I think he said a sledgehammer, a 10 or 12 pound sledgehammer. And he said, it didn't leave a mark. I tried to uh, burn it with my cigarette lighter. The stuff wouldn't burn. And just a, a lot of things that Marcel claimed made it very odd. Now, later, when the military, when the Army Air Force tried to empty the Roswell saucer and cup, okay, they tried to say it was a weather balloon. Neoprene, rubber. Basically, like uh, kids would use in those days, making a model airplane balsa wood, a scotch tape on the balsa wood with pretty little flowers. And it was really a crap excuse. So I looked at all this over the years. Now, do I think an ET craft, in fact, came down there? I don't know. I just don't know. Could it have been something else? Sure. Uh, As a matter of fact, John Keel, a famous writer and investigator of the 14 phenomena stuff, wrote an article for our magazine back in the day where he suggested, well, maybe it was a Japanese Fugo balloon. Now, those were balloons that Japan had launched that carried bomb loads. In the jet stream, hopefully over the United States, and a number of them, in fact, did crash down. They were later found. It was easy to uh, understand what you were looking at, although one of those uh, balloon loads ended up killing a number of civilians who stumbled over one that didn't know what it was, and they were killed, subsequently killed. But you wouldn't mistake it for something otherworldly. Make no mistake: what Marcel claimed, it was something he just simply didn't know what it was. Now, Marcel has taken, and he's been dead, incidentally, for many years. But he's taken a lot of hits over that. Uh, everybody ends up in this field at one time or another, taking hits. But let's look at what the military and the government has done with this case. They're on the record at least three times admitting they lied about it. In 1997, on the 50th anniversary, I was contacted by NBC News, and I did a number of appearances on not only the NBC Nightly News with uh, Tom Brokaw, although Brokaw wasn't there that night, talking about the Roswell 50th anniversary. Incidentally, the Air Force had just issued their Roswell case closed final report booklet. But the colonel that gave the briefing at the Pentagon to the press very adroitly made sure nobody could see. The report until after he gave his talk. We got our copy at UFO Magazine. I immediately went through that with a fine-tooth comb, and my God, what a load of bovine excrement the Air Force was passing off. For example, they used photographs of NASA space probes from the 70s to try to point the public in, well, this is something that might have been mistaken for a flying saucer. And then when they addressed the business about bodies, they tried to say that the bodies actually was uh, a compressed uh, history or, or some stupid term this guy came up with that the military was doing. A uh, high altitude parachute test with anthropomorphic dummies.
1: With Don Ecker, Gene, and Randall, you're in the Paracast.
11: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit gcnlive.com today.
6: Fellow patriots, my name is Todd Savage, founder of BlackRifleRealEstate.com. Like you, I was a prisoner of the Alt-Left Sanctuary State until one day I chose to lead my family to freedom. Today we live on a sustainable 20-acre homestead where we shoot, hunt, garden, and homeschool our children without the tyranny of the nanny state looking over us. If you're ready to flee the city to the freedom of Idaho or Montana, our Black Rifle Real Estate team is here to help. Go to BlackRifleRealEstate.com. That's BlackRifleRealEstate.com.
9: USA Radio News
12: with Wendy King.
5: Officials have identified the gunman who killed 12 people and was shot dead by officers at a Virginia Beach municipal building as Dwayne Craddock, ATF Special Agent in Charge, Ashawn Benedict.
12: We identified two weapons used in the shooting yesterday. Both weapons are 45 caliber pistols. One was purchased in 2016.
13: One was purchased in 2018. Both pistols were purchased by the shooter and all indications are they were purchased
0: legally.
5: Democrats are once again talking about gun legislation. Senator Bernie Sanders.
0: Making sure that people who should not own guns do not own guns.
5: Mayor Pete Buttigieg.
12: This is routine. We know it's not the last time this is going to happen, and Washington's failure to act is costing lives.
5: And Amy Klobuchar.
14: I come from a proud hunting state. I look at all these proposals and I say, does this hurt my Uncle Dick in the deer stand? They don't.
5: This is USA Radio News.
15: Call right now. That number again is 800-280-2144.
16: Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? $92,000. Ouch.
13: The IRS left no room for Jake to breathe. They put a lien on my house, took all the money out of my bank account, took money out of my paychecks. So it was a nightmare. He needed help fast. I figured that all these companies were the same until I called Federal Tax Management. Hi, this is Bryce Abel. I'm the producer of Dark Skies, the co-author of A.D. After Disclosure, and you are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal
1: radio. This may be the Air Force's dummy
3: explanation, Don Ecker? Yeah, what they were basically saying, that people in 1947 confused themselves by stating that they saw alien bodies in 47, when in fact there were no bodies until 53, 54, when the air force were dropping these dummies. I mean, the military guys were just really stretching. So they lied continuously about that. Now, as a former detective, I remembered back to when I was investigating various types of cases, and if I had somebody, a suspect, a witness, uh, something along those lines that intentionally lied to me, I had to start wondering why they lied. The same thing with these Roswell UFO explanations. Why would the government lie about something, especially considering Today, it's been over 70 years since this event happened. Now, maybe that's not too mysterious when you consider that today, as we do this show, there are still documents and reports that are classified from the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln in 1865. Now, think about that, for God's sake.
2: What could they be you know, hiding from that? Like, you yeah, know,
3: that's you, exactly you know, right. Was he really a vampire killer or hunter?
1: I don't know. Maybe that was it. But That's it. That's the <laughs> secret. Abraham Lincoln, vampire hunter.
2: Well, well you, know, you make a valid point, though, Don, because really, wouldn't it have been just as simple for them to say, well, we don't really know. Most of the documents from that era have been uh, destroyed or have gone missing instead of concocting some kind of story.
3: Well, you see, that's the thing. When, when you live in a, in a land, a national security state, which we in the United States today are, a national security state that if those articles are invoked, now think about this, the government, and when I say the government, I'm talking primarily military intelligence people, could do anything up to and including premeditated murder. That's yeah, what like, you're looking at.
2: Right now, what is it? Trump's been using it for to impose tariffs and trade sanctions and stuff like that. I mean- that's a bit of an aside, but I mean... It,
3: that's, that's a big aside there, yeah, Randall. This still. is not economics. <laughs> We're not talking economics.
2: It's still kind of odd, though, don't you think? Like, what, Like, national security, like, that's going too far. But the point is, they can do whatever they want. It
3: depends on what it is they are hiding. Make no doubt, something momentous is being hidden. Why do I say that? Well, let's jump forward from Roswell to two years ago, when former Senator Harry Reid came out, held a presser talking about he had accumulated over $20 million to fund uh, military aerial threat research because of UFOs. Finally, after 70 years of deny, 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 today, we are openly talking about military pilots encountering, not once, not twice, but a bunch of times, unidentified flying objects. Things that the pilots themselves state, well, it was performing stuff that would kill any human by, by these uh, aerodynamic, mysterious you know, flight patterns that they can fly, like going hypersonic, coming to a sudden stop, making drastic instantaneous right-angle turns, the G-force would smash anybody into putty if we tried it, but these things can do it. As a matter of fact, this morning, okay, while I was having my morning coffee, uh, a friend of mine in the field called me, and we were talking about this uh, trip to the stars You know, special that's going to be airing tomorrow all right, with uh, all those all those people that have been in the news recently. And I said to them, I said, look, I've been thinking about this, this dramatic opening up in some quarters of this. I said, I got to tell you, pal, the thing that I am thinking of, and and I've looked at this from every angle I could look at it from, that they – Those in power are aware that something is coming down the pike. And if it just suddenly sprung upon us, I said there there would be worldwide chaos. So what if they know this? I don't have any clue about a time frame, but they're slowly opening the strings and, and cracking the safe with all the secrets in it open to once again prepare the public. And my friend, you know, he said, well, you know, Don, he said, my God, he said that that's exactly what I've been thinking. So I don't know. I guess we'll see when it happens. But it's it's weird. Now, Gene has been in this even longer than I have. And Gene, you got to be thinking, I would think along these lines, too, because you have seen how for. Well, 50, 60 years that you've been involved, you have seen how, how this game has been played up till now. Right? Well, I
1: have this feeling here that it's a two-way sword. There may be a top-secret organization that knows the secret of the UFOs. The silence group is what Major Keo called them. They know something. But the regular-level people know nothing. Their concern is strictly national security, and that's why they do what they do. So, you know, we have possibly two different areas we're talking about. The secret, if there is a secret agency, we never hear about it. They would never hold press conferences. They would be harder to find than Bob Mueller. They would be hidden away. Possibly people you see in the military rosters and the government rosters are involved I wouldn't call it an MJ-12 group because I'm not at all convinced an MJ-12 existed. But that would be one way to keep a secret. I get the impression, though, in light of the Pentagon UFO study that Senator Reid, former Senator Reid, was involved in, I get the impression there that a lot of the people in the military didn't know the stories that came out in the New York Times and Washington Post Seem to say, oh, at last, they're going to take UFOs seriously. What were they doing in 1950? What about Project Blue Book? Wasn't that supposed to be the agency to take them seriously? It's like the prior history did not exist. Hmm.
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. <clears throat> because I mean they studied collectively for over 20 years, when officially within the Defense Department, one, in one form or another, mostly in the Air Force. Now, this ATIP thing came out of the Defense Intelligence Agency, which is separate from all of them. It kind of networks in with the the Navy, the, the Army. It's the, the, Air the military's Force.
3: version of the CIA.
2: Yeah, and so I mean, if if anybody knows what's going on in there, you know, with regard to the whole thing and how all the pieces fit amongst the various departments, it seems like they. They'd be a place
3: to look. Well, you know, recently, very recently, I have begun some research into another area, uh, no less mystifying, no less exciting, actually, than the UFO thing. And it has the added benefit that it very well could tie into the UFO thing. It's the cliffhanger, folks. What is that thing? We
1: got these things to listen to and more to come with Gene and Randall and Don
3: Eckert. You're in the Paracast.
11: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
12: Many
9: medicines used to treat colds and flu contain acetaminophen, a pain reliever and fever reducer found in hundreds of over-the-counter and prescription medicines. But taking too much or more than one medication containing acetaminophen per day can damage your liver. So always read the label and don't take acetaminophen if you drink three or more alcoholic drinks every day. To learn more, visit FDA.gov otcpaininfo OTC Pain Info. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Food and Drug Administration.
2: Hi, it's Grant Cameron from PresidentialUFO.com. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: Don Ecker, what
3: is that thing? Well, recently, in the last several years, there has been a discovery up in Greenland of an impact crater, a large one that happened and it's been dated to approximately 12,000 years ago. Now, our history and believe me it's spotty at best, our history can really and and when I was in college, by the way, I was a major and uh, my major was in history. I loved history then, I love it now. And I've always been uh, a huge fan of it. You throw a history book in front of me, depending upon what time frame we're talking about, and I'm lost. I'm gone, okay? Now, this impact happened roughly 12,000 years ago. And 12,000 years ago, there was a worldwide change. Okay, that was the beginning of the Younger Dryas epic, and up to that point, North America was covered, almost half of all of North America was covered under an ice sheet, anywhere from one to two miles of ice that covered the continent, and the continent teamed with megafauna. What am I talking about? I'm talking about major groups of animals that were probably beyond counting. We're talking about mastodons and great woolly mammoths. We're talking about saber-toothed cats. We're talking about diurnal wolves. If you're a fan of Game of Thrones, you'll know what diurnal wolves are. Giant ground sloths. We're talking about animals that, uh, well, if you're ever in Los Angeles, you definitely will want to go to the La Brea tar pits where these animals are being pulled from the tar daily, all right? These animals that got trapped in these petroleum deposits, And while they were trapped and they couldn't get free, they would be screaming and carrying on. And then the predators, the saber-toothed cats and the wolves and other animals would show up for an all-day feast, not realizing they too would get trapped. And suddenly, in an instant, almost an instant, everything was gone. And I mean everything was gone. At that time, there were also many human beings here. And today, they're collectively known as the Clovis people. And the reason they're known as the Clovis people, they had a very distinctive stone tool pattern that they used. The first examples were found in Clovis, New Mexico. And uh, they have been found from that time frame, that epic, all across the United States, what today is the United States. And then something happened. Now, when I was a kid, and I'm talking about probably 12, 13 years old, my father bought a bunch of National Geographic magazines from my grandfather's brother, oldest brother, who had passed on. He bought it from uh, my uncle's, my great uncle's widow. I can remember when dad brought all these magazines home and they went back literally to the turn of the century. There are issues of those magazines that were like from 1900, 1901, 1902, and they went all the way up to the 1950s. So when I was a kid, I can remember sitting in the middle of all those damn magazines going through them. And one, well actually there were two copies that stuck with me. One was the finding of King Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922. And that was that was an issue that uh, oh my god, I I I just couldn't get over that. And then there was an issue from sometime in the 1930s, where hunters in Siberia, which at that time was still the USSR, the Soviet Union, hunters in Siberia discovered huge boneyards of mammoths and mastodons that like something had literally picked them up And threw them like a fastball, and they were smashed to pieces. Other ones that they had found buried in the muck from 12,000, roughly 12,000 years ago, were frozen solid, still with buttercups that they were eating in their mouths and undigested food in their bellies. Something flash froze them in an instant. Now, as scientists did a lot of investigation, examination, and what have you, they came up with the theory that at least 1,000 mile per hour winds literally picked these herds up and smashed them. Now, what in God's green earth could have done that. Well, one of the explanations is this impact that happened was so massive that went worldwide. It it totally changed the climate of the planet. Okay. Within a thousand years of that event, the ice sheets in North America had receded, had melted, the oceans were raised one to 200 feet, okay, and everything was different. Now, you know, in those days, where did people usually put down settlements or whatever? Close to the shores. Now, something would have wiped those people out almost as quickly as those animals were destroyed. And at any rate, this is something that I've been following up on and I'm planning down the road here, hopefully before too long to have some experts come into my radio show and, uh, do some specials on this very amazing event. And, and here's the other thing, uh, Gene, you will probably remember this man's name, Charles Hapgood. I sure do. Yeah. Charles Hapgood was a scientist in the in the 1950s who came out with a book talking about these very real things. He was also the guy credited with bringing the infamous Perry Reese map to the public's attention. And as a matter of fact, you mentioned Kehoe earlier. Kehoe talked about him somewhat extensively in one of his books in the 50s because the Perry Reese map Shows the continent of Antarctica that was totally clear. No snow, no ice. And Hapgood's theory was that something caused the mantle of the planet to shift. Now, if that would have happened, well, you know, the bottom line is it would have been practically a planet extinction event. And as it is, this thing 12,000 years ago was darn near an extinction event and was for who knows how many people and animals ended up dying as a result of whatever it was that, that happened. Let me remind those of you who have followed my writings
1: over the years. Of course, Richard Shaver talked of some Cataclysmic event thousands of years ago. There are lots of legends. There's Atlantis, Lemuria, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. This opens up some real fascinating possibilities. Another fascinating possibility is Paracast Plus. We offer a version of the show free of the network ads with their tolerance at GCN and the After the Paracast Podcast where you never, ever, ever, did I say never, know what's gonna happen next? And the language is unfettered. In fact, there was a great episode with Don and Tim Beckley way back where, let's just say, they have few disagreements and were very frank in expressing the point. So pay a visit to plus.theparacast.com, plus.theparacast.com for more info. Don, Gene, and Randall, you're in The Paracast. <laughs>
0: Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Classic science fiction at its best. Available now. For more details, visit Rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S.com. com.
19: Hey folks, Tom D. for ParanormalDate.com. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com. That's ParanormalDate.com. Use the code word George and start meeting others. Get going now and connect with someone you like.
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Jane Steinberg.
1: So let's take you to this journey to the past. What are you working on, Don Ecker? The whole
3: 12,000-year-old mystery. Now, when I said earlier in the show that our written history only goes back uh, approximately a little over 6,000 years to the emergence of the Uh, city-states in Mesopotamia, which is today's modern Iraq, and I'm talking about the Sumerian culture. We have written records from that time, but what has always been something that had historians and archaeologists and other people interested in this is what they refer to As the Sumerian problem. Now, what in the heck could they be talking about? Sumeria is our first recorded civilization. It's often been described as the birthplace of civilization. Incidentally, I don't believe that, but uh, that's how it's been described. But what is the problem? Well, when these people suddenly appeared okay in the plains of Mesopotamia by the river by the rivers I should say the Tigris Euphrates rivers they came with civilization already buttoned up tight now what do I mean by that well they had and used advanced mathematics they had and used, uh, well, they had government down to a fine point. They had a king. They had kingship. They had agriculture. They had animal husbandry. They had, did I mention mathematics? They had astronomy, okay? As a matter of fact, they were some of the finest astronomers before the advent of modern uh, astronomy equipment around and, and we're talking about the first recorded civilization. Now, when they talked about where they got this knowledge, they said it was lowered from heaven to them by the Anunnaki, which means those who from heaven to earth came. Now, They just showed up. They showed up from where? Well, historians cannot agree on where they came from. But this is something that historians and archaeologists don't talk about, okay, because it's another problem. At that time, there was the extremely ancient city of Jericho already there, that was over 9,000 years ago, which is 3,000 years before Sumeria. And then in the last few years, something else astounding was discovered. Göbekli Tepe, which is in today modern Turkey, apparently a temple complex that to this day, is still only very smallly excavated. There's a heck of a lot more that they've discovered using ground-penetrating radar that has not yet been dug up, but with some extremely uh, sophisticated uh, columns and, and temple sites and carvings that show all types of animals and birds and other mysterious things, including recently, it's come to light, the depiction of a heavenly visitor that hit the earth. This dates to over 11,000 years ago. So my point is there was a heck of a lot going on that nobody okay, really has a handle on, which tells me that before this happened, this event, okay, that that basically did a planetary reset back to the Stone Age, that there were advanced cultures out there. One of them, in, in fact, may have been the infamous Atlantean society and empire. Now, When you talk about Atlantis with mainstream academics, okay, they treat you the same way that 15, 20 years ago, if you tried to talk to a college professor about UFOs, all right, they look at you like you suddenly sprouted two or three heads. Like, who is this moron? Where's the man in the white coat and the butterfly net? But. Suddenly, it doesn't seem so preposterous. Plato, back about 460 BC, is really one of the first people, or if not the first people, to publicly speak about this lost civilization. And he credits it coming from an ancestor of his, Solon, who had been an Athenian lawgiver, a highly respected man, a man with, as described in history, with an unblemished character, who in his later years decided to travel to Egypt because Egypt was the one culture at that point that had extensive records going back to the past. So he did. He traveled to the temple site of Sias, and he spoke to the priests there, According to Plato, he took extensive notes, wanted to know what they knew about many things when they broached the subject of the lost culture of Atlantis to him. All right. Now, according to the Egyptians, there was a catastrophe and Atlantis disappeared in a day and a night. It was gone. This extensive civilization that had worldwide connections. And apparently they were master mariners and suddenly nothing. Okay. Now this is another angle to this story that I would think would excite anybody that uh, has a uh, a modicum of, of sense and gray matter. Because, you know, what is it, that famous canard that everybody uses, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to uh, basically play it again. And uh, we don't know when something like that, in fact, could happen. But there's something else that, especially coming from NASA in the last number of years, a lot of people should uh, be cognizant of. They are continuously on the alert for, planet, or for space-borne bodies, asteroids, meteorites, and what have you, comets, that if they impacted on the Earth, what would happen? Now, just this past weekend, I read a report where a very large asteroid flew by planet Earth. And, of course, there was no problem with it. But what would happen if suddenly they discover one heading our way? Now, at the program, at the beginning of the program, we were talking about MJ 12 and we were talking about UFOs and suddenly the government beginning, or seemingly the government beginning to open up about that. And I was going to say at the time, but I didn't get a chance. Well, what if, you know, why would they hide UFOs? Well, could there be something that basically, if the public knew about it, it would totally freak them out? You know, no. our sponsors will be
1: freaked out. That's a bad segue. If we don't give them a chance, let them have a bite of the apple. Unless, of course, you're a subscriber to Paracast Plus. Don Ecker, Gene Steinberg, Jay, Randall Murphy,
0: Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors. Classic science fiction at its best. Available now. For more details, visit Rockoids.com. That's R O C K O I D S.com.
4: If you owe money to the IRS, you need to hear this. The IRS is cracking down on those who owe back taxes. It starts with a devastating letter. And if you don't act immediately, you could find yourself having your wages garnished or have a lien placed on your property. But there's a solution. Tax 10,000 can help. Avoid enforced compliance where these holds on your income and seizure of your home could become a nightmare that just won't end. Call 800-239-9957 now and speak to one of our experts. 800-239-9957 is the number to link you directly to a tax resolution specialist who will negotiate with the IRS on your behalf. Working through the IRS Fresh Start Program, all the forms will be handled for you. All you have to do is make the toll-free call. 800-239-9957. Find out if you qualify and possibly save yourself thousands of dollars not to mention a lot of headaches it could be the best call you've made today that number again 800-239-9957 the service does not provide tax settlement or legal services we will refer you to a company that does provide such services often the irs will not agree to any reduction in the amount owed not all taxpayers who owe more than ten thousand
12: dollars will qualify for a tax reduction program
15: That's 800-985-1610. Hi, I'm Dan Pilla.
20: I started fighting the IRS over 40 years ago when they tried to seize my mother's house. I sued the IRS and won. I beat the IRS then, and I've been beating them ever since. I wrote the book on tax debt settlement, and I've helped thousands of people deal with tax problems they thought might never be solved. I can help you, too. If you owe taxes you can't pay, don't wait another day. There's no such thing as a hopeless tax case. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com, danpilla.com.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: So we're now really learning some lessons of history with Don Ecker. Go ahead.
3: So I was thinking to myself, what if suddenly the powers that be, NASA, for example, discovered that one of these asteroids or comets were headed our way that had the potential to be basically an extinction event. Would they tell us? And uh, my bottom line is no, I don't think they would. They would let it be a big surprise because let us say NASA or the government or the president comes on television one night and tells us, well, you know what, ladies and gentlemen, NASA has discovered a four-mile-wide asteroid that's definitely headed to impact on the Earth in a year and a half. Now, we're working diligently. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to try to deflect this uh, space body. But I just had to tell you that, you know, if we're not successful, oh boy. Now imagine if, and which, I mean, nobody would ever do a, basically a, a speech like that, because if they did, what would happen? Would anybody want to get up tomorrow morning and go to work? Would anybody want to fill out their tax forms? Would anybody really care how rudely you started <laughs> you started to act? In other words, the bottom line is we would lose that veneer of civilization before the event. So, looking at that in that regard, I sincerely doubt that they would uh, let us know until it was too late to do anything about it. You make
2: a really good point there, Don, that a lot of people don't necessarily consider is that typically we tend to think, well, wouldn't it be the most exciting thing in the world to know about this? As you just say, there's this flip side to the coin where it could just as equally make people apathetic. What's the point? And even if it were an ET or some sort of advanced race, we'd be going, well, why are we struggling so hard to come up with basically the same thing as stone tools and bearskins when they've already got all of the keys to the universe? Like, we'd be suddenly thrown into third world status.
3: No, it'd be more like 57th world status. Sorry to interrupt there. Can you uh, please? No, begin? no, that that's fine. That's basically, uh, basically what I had to say about it. You know, well, I'll tell you, it's a head scratcher because we truly don't know what we don't know. Now this is to go. Apparently it's going to seem like I'm taking an entirely different segue, but, 20-odd years ago, the military and the intelligence agencies had a program called Stargate. And Stargate was involved with a military and intelligence-sanctioned group of individuals known as remote viewers. And basically, we're talking about psychics on parade, okay, They would use these individuals to try to peer into the future to see what may be coming down. Now, the military did it for over 20 years before they shut it down. And my point is, with everything that's happening today, I mean, you take a look around the world. And I'm sorry to say it, but we're in a sad state of affairs. We have a potential big problem with the nation of Iran. We have a potential huge problem with the nation of Korea. We are at odds with the Russians. We are at odds with the communist Chinese. Do you really think that they could afford to shut something down like remote viewing, I am convinced that they simply moved that to another department and it's going just fine right now. They have those guys working overtime.
2: I wouldn't be the least bit surprised. Uh, I remember a, a bit on the Letterman show where they actually had uh, some Russian guys from their intelligence department pitted up against the guys from the United States with their technology and the Russian guys were the guys that were using this before they started getting into it heavy in in the States and their aim was to find this thing that had been hidden within the office building and they had camera crews follow the two sets around and the Russian guys beat them to it by quite a substantial margin. I mean when you're thinking okay you got two sets of spooks, Uh, one on our side, and then uh, the ones over there, whoever they happen to be, well, of course, they're going to want to get the same level of performance out of our intelligence as they do. So somewhere along the way, they can't afford not to look into it.
3: Oh, absolutely. And uh, I had a contact uh, with a guy by the name of Gary Beckham that I interviewed a number of times over the years who really was ensconced into this research. As a matter of fact, he's got a a number of books out. Now, one of the books, and I do not have them here in front of me, I, I can't tell you the exact title, but it's basically revolving around lunar mysteries. Now, the guy that was the person designing the protocols for this remote viewing program was a man by the name of Ingo Swann. Ingo was the guy and was recognized as one of the top psychic people in the world. And he had an extraordinary encounter with uh, some extremely shadowy government people. It's a tremendous story. I'm not going to go into it all here, Although he detailed it extensively in his book, Penetration, which, incidentally, if you're curious about that, you can download the entire book on PDF free of charge. It's on the web. You just have to go to your search engine, put in Ingo, I-N-G-O, Swan, and Penetration and you'll be taken right up there where you can download the book. But basically, this encounter with these shadowy intelligence people involved him being taken to a secret location. Uh, He did not know where it was. He was basically blindfolded when he went to this site, and for three days, they had him in this underground room performing some remote viewing. This project. He didn't know what they were looking for. He didn't know where his mind took him, but it suddenly became clear it was to the moon, the far side of the moon, where he described an extraterrestrial base. Got to stop at the extraterrestrial base. The cliffhanger
1: extraterrestrial base. Don, Gene, and Randall, you're in the Paracast. <laughs>
11: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNLive.com today.
6: Fellow Patriots, my name is Todd Savage, founder of blackriflerealestate.com Estate.com. Like you, I was a prisoner of the Alt Left Sanctuary State until one day I chose to leave my family to freedom. Today we live on a sustainable 20-acre homestead where we shoot, hunt, garden, and homeschool our children without the tyranny of the nanny state looking over us. If you're ready to flee the city to the freedom of Idaho or Montana, our Black Rifle Real Estate team is here to help. Go to BlackRifleRealEstate.com. That's BlackRifleRealEstate.com.
9: USA Radio News
12: with Wendy King.
5: Twelve people are dead after a shooter opened fire at a municipal center in Virginia Beach. The city mourned the dead as investigators looked for a motive behind Friday's mass shooting. Police Chief James Severa.
17: We've recovered a 45
3: caliber handgun with multiple extended magazines that were emptied at the time. The suspect was reloading. Extended magazines in that handgun
5: firing at victims throughout the building and at our officers. Police said the suspect, who was killed in an exchange with responding officers, was a longtime public utilities employee. They believe he was the only shooter. The suspect entered building two and he immediately began to indiscriminately fire upon all the victims. One of the officers was also shot. Authorities say his vest saved his life. This is USA Radio News. Does your business spend
15: $500 a month or more on gas and electric bills? Did you know by making a simple free phone call, you can save up to 25% on your bill every month. What could you do with a 25% savings on utility bills every month? Energy deregulation is now available in your state. Making one simple phone call will show you how we can lower your gas and electric bills instantly. With no changes to your bill and no enrollment fee. This is a free service. The only thing you'll notice is a lower bill every month. Call U.S. Power & Light right now. Learn how easy it is to lower your utility bills for your business and save money. We promise. So if you spend over $500 a month on your gas and electric bills, please call right now and unleash your savings. 800-941-3381. 800-941-3381. 800-941-3381. That's 800-941-3381.
16: Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? 92 Take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax management hotline now. 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625.
20: Hello, this is John Burroughs, one of the witnesses to the Rendlesham UFO incident. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: So, Don Ecker, what were you telling
3: us about an extraterrestrial base? Swan, when he began this remote viewing exercise, was given a series of coordinates. Okay, that's all, just coordinates. And he went through the protocols that he himself, as a matter of fact, had designed. And the process took over. And suddenly, he found himself... His mind's eye, I should say, in what appeared to be an extremely dusty area, this place, he was looking at what appeared to be a green shield over these buildings, a lot of buildings, buildings with antennas, buildings with, you know, lit windows, all this type of thing. He didn't know what he was looking at. And suddenly, there were a number, he described, a number of humanoid figures out there working outside of these buildings when they became aware of his presence. And suddenly, all these beings, or well, I hesitate to call them people, suddenly began looking at the spot that he was observing them from and it frightened him so bad that he was basically knocked out of this remote viewing session. Yeah, that was,
2: sounds pretty freaky. I mean, that would be like if that was a, ne- a dream, that would wake me up. Like that that's pretty bizarre.
3: Yeah, but this is definitely I could not strongly suggest enough that uh, you find this book on the web, downloaded. It's a fascinating read. It takes you through the entire Stargate program, the process, some of the remote viewing sessions that Swan was involved in. And uh, I can guarantee you a night or two of some fascinating reading. That sounds pretty cool. You had a guest on your show, Dark
2: Matters, too, That was that's worth listening to. You, I'm going to need some help remembering who this guest was, but you had him on. And he was a, a guy, I think he was some kind of an engineer who got curious about where the high-resolution images from the NASA went to NASA and had this whole story about the major runaround that he got trying to get access to the high-resolution photographs.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that was a fellow by the name of Vito Sicari. Right, yeah, that was a good show. And that was from November of 1995. Yeah, this uh, encounter with NASA, this was long before anybody uh, was talking about hidden lunar uh, information. Okay, this took place in 79. Uh, He was an engineer, a petrochemical engineer, based in Houston, Texas, and his firm that he was uh, working with had been contracted to do work for another firm out of Venezuela. Now, this was back in the in the days before Venezuela collapsed. They had a thriving economy at the time. There were a lot of uh, corporations down there doing oil exploration and other things. But anyway, Vito had been in touch with one of those guys uh, for quite a while because their two firms work together. And this company in Venezuela sent this fellow up to Houston and uh, Vito was detailed to basically squire this guy around uh, for the couple of weeks that he was going to be there to, uh, you know, basically whatever this guy needed, wanted to do whatever, Vito was the guy that was going to make it happen. His name was Lester, Lester Howells. When Lester got up to Houston and Vito and him finally met face to face, you know, they clicked right away. They'd been in touch by telex and, uh, telex and uh, telephones for a long time. This guy reached into his back pocket, pulled out a beaten up copy of a book, handed it to Vito. And said, Vito. He said, "You got to go home tonight and read this." Vito looked at the book, and it was titled "Somebody Else Is on the Moon." I forget now the guy's uh, the author's name. So, "Oh, George Leonard. Somebody else is on the moon, written by George Leonard." Now yeah, Leonard
2: got that book. It's yeah, it's 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 old, but it was pretty interesting, and that's what got me interested in uh, checking out that show. So yeah, yeah. Please continue.
3: Well, Leonard, okay, had been a science writer and he had some associates and friends that had worked in the Apollo program when we went to the moon. Our six successful touchdowns, the last one being in December 72. So they started talking quietly behind the scenes because everything at NASA at that point was very hush-hush. If it wasn't on TV and talked about by Walter Cronkite, you know, nobody else knew about it. And he showed Vito some photographs that the Apollo astronauts had taken that basically knocked George Leonard on his heels. What these photographs seemed to show was industrial activity with massive. And when I talk about massive, I'm talking about big, big as a house, maybe bigger equipment doing unknown, inexplicable things on the moon. And a lot of it on the far side of the moon, this the side that we never see when we go outside and look up into the sky. Now, Leonard ended up writing this book. It came out around 70, I think six, uh, a number of copies were, well, quite a few copies were sold and then suddenly somebody else on the moon disappeared. Okay. But this fellow Lester house had gotten his hands on. So Vito came back to work the next day and said, uh, well, okay, he said, I read through this. This is interesting, but what's the point? And Lester told him, I want to go down to uh, NASA and ask to see these pictures. Yeah, <laughs> Which, right. It you know, sounds
2: in the like book, a
17: simple thing, right?
2: Yeah, the hey, ones in to- the book were all like, uh, they were low res and black and white. Now, and I remember thinking exactly the same thing. Look, if they've got these pictures, they got to be better than what's in this book, right? So,
3: so,
2: yeah, so, so, okay. So he's decided he wants to go and find where these pictures came from.
3: Well, that was the beginning of an odyssey that lasted several weeks and I wouldn't do justice to the story by just glossing over some of these things, but they made such a pain of themselves because NASA gave them the fast shuffle around. Number one, they told these guys, well, you can't see the pictures. Why not? They're classified classified. What do you mean? They're classified. They're in the public. They're in this book. How are they classified? (laughs) Yeah. And you know, Stuff like that. At one point, now, they wouldn't let them drive on to the facility. So they had to walk around. Have you ever been to Houston, Texas in the summertime? I mean, it gets hot down there. And these guys were old school, okay? They went down to NASA in their suit and their ties and, (laughs) you know, and they thought, well, you know, they'll just point us to a facility. We'll drive over there. Get out, go in, tell the guy what we want to see, and he'll get them, and and that'll be that. Well, no. Yes. Yeah. I'm saying yes. yes. We're going to break
1: for a couple of seconds here with Don and Gene and Randall. You're in the Paracast.
11: Thank you for listening to GCN.
6: Fellow patriots, my name is Todd Savage, founder of BlackRifleRealEstate.com. Like you, I was a prisoner of the Alt-Left Sanctuary State until one day I chose to lead my family to freedom. Today we live on a sustainable 20-acre homestead where we shoot, hunt, garden, and homeschool our children without the tyranny of the nanny state looking over us. If you're ready to flee the city to the freedom of Idaho or Montana, our Black Rifle Real Estate team is here to help. Go to BlackRifleRealEstate.com. That's BlackRifleRealEstate.com.
5: This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast.
1: So many fascinating tales from Don Ecker. Never ends. We could just say, Don, go ahead and do the show, and Randall and I will just sit back. Don Ecker, go ahead.
3: Well, this was a story that was virtually unknown to anybody. The upshot was, after weeks and weeks of dealing with these people that went to basically every length to obstruct them, they finally got the okay to where these photographs were stored, and they went down there. Now, in George Leonard's book, he had each of those photographs identified there were certain coding so naturally these guys assumed well we'll just go down there we got a list of which of these photographs we want to see i got the code for them we'll give them to the archivist and voila we should have the pictures so they get down there they get in they get to the guy finally Okay, his name was Roger, I believe. Uh, Vito identified him as Roger, handed Roger the list. Roger took it, he looked at it, and he said, well, guys, this isn't going to do you any good. What? Why not? Look, it's in this book. Well, yeah, but here's the problem. NASA has the United States divided up in separate districts. Each district has their own set of codes for their lunar archives. For example, let's say your code for this photograph is 123. Well, it's not 123 here in Houston. Well, what is it? Well, I don't know. You don't know. Now, imagine living, for example, in New York City, okay, you go to the library, you're looking for War and Peace, Tolstoy's opus, War and Peace. So you start reading it. Suddenly you get moved to uh, Los Angeles, California. You got to give the book back. You go to Los Angeles. You walk in say, well, the Dewey Decimal System says, this is the number I need. I want to get war and peace. And they have a different Dewey Decimal System. You see what I'm saying?
2: Oh, yeah. I'm seeing exactly what you're saying. And, you know, you'd think there'd be a master, uh, you know, for, so that they could cross-reference all of that? There
3: was. Guess yeah. where it was? Guess where it was, Randall? Langley, Virginia. Of course. Okay. Langley, Virginia. Else is in Langley, Virginia. Uh, lots of uh, alphabets. Big agencies. Big <laughs> building that says Christians yeah. in Action. Right? Mm-hmm. CIA. So anyway, they finally got, and then this is after more BS. They finally got the correct coding for these photographs. So Roger goes and he starts digging these things up. Now, you would think, well, here we go. This picture, okay, yeah, this matches up with Leonard. How about this picture? They, they thought they'd get eh, maybe 30, 40 photographs to look at. No, they didn't. They got hundreds of photographs. Hundreds, you say? Yeah, hundreds. Why? Well, they would see something interesting with the cameras on board the craft, right? And it would start taking a series of photographs. First photograph, second photograph, closer, third photograph, closer yet, next photograph, even closer. They were basically shooting film strips of these things in close-up. And they were able to get a copy of, let's say they found uh, something interesting in Mericrissian. Well they would get maybe twenty photographs of that something, each one in closer detail. And yeah, they started seeing some amazing things. Now, when they went down there, NASA told them, now remember, this is long before, long before pocket computers, et cetera. They could Holy just thing. take
2: their iPhone down there and take a snapshot or something. Or.
3: Exactly. Well, there there was no such animal. They were only allowed to go in there with a jeweler's loop, okay, a small magnifying glass. They were restricted. They could take their book with them. and And no, my God, these guys were engineers. You can't take a slide rule in there. Why not? Well, because you can't. Well, when they got in there and they started looking at these photographs, and some of the photographs, you know, had all the information on the other side. For example, uh, if they would have had a slide rule, they could have figured out the altitude that the photograph was taken from, the size of the area, and then they could start computing on how large or how small these things were that they were seeing. But NASA. Would not allow them to do that. So, all they could work on from that point forward was on memory. I mean, they were going to great lengths to hide a lot of stuff. So, later, when uh, I aired that show, I did that show, it was right around Thanksgiving of '95. I'll tell you, I never in my life had a more well responded to. Broadcast than that. Even today, occasionally, like you just did, I'll hear from people. You know, Don, I heard that show you did with Vito Sicari. Oh my God, that was the most compelling radio.
2: Oh, yeah, it was quite the saga that uh, this fella. And it because, I mean, let's face it, how many of us have bumped up against red tape with the government? Well, you know, his story is just like if you think you've ha- bumped into it, you just got to check out that episode. So, so there's another little tidbit you might be interested in when we go back to Ingo Swan. I've mentioned Michael Persinger in the past, and and you said, you know, not, uh, well, you know, sort of kind of just uh, not all that impressed, but he did a study with Ingo. What makes you think that? Uh, it just seems to me that I recall kind of that you were saying, well, Persinger, not so sure that you were that impressed with him. Now, maybe I'm wrong. I might hmm. be confused about that. but. You might be interested to know that he did uh, some testing with Ingo Swan, where it turned out that his, um, what they call the bipolar en- electroencephalographic activity over his occipital and temporal frontal lobes, there was a significant, what he called, congruence between the stimuli and Swan's electroencephalographic activity. So there was definitely something going on inside Ingo's brain that corresponded directly with these experiences that he was having, according to Persinger, who is a scientist, a real scientist.
3: Right. He's the guy that designed the helmet, right?
2: Yeah, the God helmet guy.
3: The guy that designed the helmet that through electronic means could cause you to have another worldly experience.
2: Exactly, yes. And uh, he had the theory that uh, maybe some of the types of experiences that people were having were caused by EM radiation from geological activity in in the Earth, which is right. You know, and then he had the Earth lights uh, theory for some UFO sightings. Interesting guy. Yeah, he's another one that's no longer with us as well. So, who's going to step up and start doing some of the science now?
3: They're dropping like flies, I tell you. They're dropping like flies. Well, you know, if you look at the UFO field today and you compare it to the people that were involved in it 25, 30 years ago, uh, if you're just looking at it from that aspect, I'd say we are in dire doo-doo.
2: Yeah, Chris Rutkowski was on our, as a guest on After the Paracast, and he posed the question, we've had these luminaries in the field in the past, Hynek, Friedman, and bona fide scientists like Persinger, and of course, there's been others as well, but as you say, I mean, they're getting old, and they're, they're dropping, and who is going to, this is how Chris it: who's going to step into the, the shoes of those people and act? As the responsible figureheads for ufology. Is ufology now dead? Are we starting a whole new uh era? I and
3: think, I think.
1: Let's leave the question: is ufology dead? And we will look at the beast in our next segment with Don, Gene, and Randall. You're in the Paracast. <laughs>
11: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit gcnlive.com today.
1: We also have swag. You know, we have all these exclusive paracast things that you can buy. Would you like to
12: get back that full head of hair from years past? Introducing Reveal from GCNLife.com Beverly Hills dermatologist Dr. Nathan Newman invented Reveal which contains polypeptides with natural botanicals and no parabens sulfates, silicones or dyes for a salon quality hair growth product. Reveal. Here's Dr. Newman.
2: I have treated a lot of patients who lose their hair and they lose their confidence we've created a unique set of polypeptides which we call HPT6.
4: The HPT6 contains the polypeptides from six different plants the scalp infusion treatment should be used on wet or
12: dry scalp the reveal hair care system is designed to be used for men and women alike get reveal at gcnlife.com with a 30-day money-back guarantee so try reveal today at gcnlife.com or 844-443-6637 plus a discount up to 25 percent off for reveal at gcnlife.com or 844-443-6637
0: Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Jane Steinberg.
1: Riddle me this, Don Necker. Is ufology as we know it dead?
3: Well, I would have to say it is pretty much on life support. What I think needs to happen, and it may be right now, who knows, uh, with this recent disclosure coming from so-called government insiders to rejuvenate the field. Now, where are the academics, where are the scientists today that are willing, that for the most part are willing to tackle this? The question is, they're apparently, up to this point, few and far between. I just recently had a PhD archaeologist on my show a couple of weeks ago. And we were discussing, well, among other things, we were discussing this 12,000-year-old problem. A lot of other hidden knowledge that uh, academics are just loathe to part with. Things like the Smithsonian Institute back in the day, destroying things that had been sent to uh, the Smithsonian with absolutely uh, not a qualm because it interfered with the commonly accepted line like giant skeletons many of them that had been discovered here in North America, going back God only knows how long ago, Uparts, things that are out of place, okay, from our understanding of history as we have been teaching it. And there's a lot of that going on. And the problem is if you get an academic who has a curious mind and is willing to extend themselves, on something that they feel passionate about if it goes against the company line they get slapped around and in some cases they get literally driven from the field now somebody that documented that in a very real world setting was michael cremo and dr richard l thompson They came out with a book roughly 25, 26 years ago. As soon as I heard about it, I I ordered it, got a copy, titled Forbidden Archaeology. And in this book is some things that will absolutely astound you. Manufactured artifacts that have been discovered going back Not hundreds or thousands of years, but literally millions of years. In one case, machined, metallic machine, because they have grooves around them, found down in South Africa that were dated in strata 3.2 billion years ago. 3.2 3.2 billion with a b archaeologists have found things like in Oklahoma in coal deposits there as they brought these coal deposits up and they broke the big uh, chunks of coal you know open so they can make it smaller you know for sale and what have you gold chain in one case fell out in another A silver vase that was basically in the ground and coal formed around it. Don't take my word for it. Uh, Get a copy of that book and take a look. But talk about attacked and castigated by the scientific establishment called pseudoscientists. I mean, you know, it's like today, okay? If you come out, and you speak, and I'll just throw this out, you speak strongly about we need a secure border because we have no idea who's coming into the country from who knows where. You're a racist. Well, that's the same thing as, as calling these guys pseudo scientists, And uh, it's meant to demean. It's meant to uh, hurt. It's meant to basically knock them out of the field.
2: The whole pseudoscience thing really gets my goat. It's definitely a pejorative term where they're trying to discredit a person, call them a crackpot or whatever the, the case may be. And and maybe in some cases, well, I don't know that it's warranted really in any case. Like If we're going to be really scientific about it, then that's not what we should be doing. Name-calling shouldn't have anything to do with it. And uh, look, we had another guest on, Sharon Hill. Now, she's a geologist, and we asked her about some of these u-parts and finds, and she was able to provide some reasonable explanations from a geological perspective as to how some of that could have taken place. But she was really open-minded about the ideas and found the mysteries themselves quite interesting and felt the same way that, that the name-calling, there shouldn't really be any place for it in a genuine study of the subject.
3: Right. Well, I can recall one one uh, item in Forbidden Archaeology that I distinctly recall because it was so outlandish. A skull of a, I think it was a bison, was discovered that was dated back 25 or 30,000 years. And, you know, within 100 years or so, they can be pretty accurate as long as they have, uh, you know, organic material to uh, carbon date. But what made this skull absolutely mind-boggling was there was a perfectly round bullet hole in the center of this animal's skull. A bullet hole.
2: Yeah, how does that happen?
3: Well, yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly, you know. Yeah, how in the heck does that happen? <laughs> hit by a random meteorite? I, I don't know. Yeah. It, uh, it kind of, you know, maybe some of the wilder, wilder stuff, you know, maybe some of this stuff gets transported in time somehow and stuck into the strata in the earth. I, I don't know. I mean, now we're getting way out there. Sure, that's that's pseudoscientific. Well, I wouldn't even call it pseudoscientific because I'm not claiming it's science. I mean, people have all kinds of ideas of what, well, maybe what it could be. And simply because somebody has an idea about, well, you know, let's consider this as a possibility, doesn't necessarily mean they're doing science. You know, so if you're not claiming you're doing science in the first place, you can't really call it pseudoscience, can you?
3: No, but they're mysteries. And, and that was one of the reasons that, You know, when, when I was working a case, I looked at it, whether I, you know, did it, you know, with, with knowledge of foresight or whatever, I looked at it like a puzzle and it, it starts to get under your skin and you get to the point where you want to solve that mystery and you use anything that, you know, you have in order to hopefully at some point or another get to the truth, but that is a casualty today. People are not concerned about getting to the truth of the matter. They are concerned about winning their viewpoint. And when, yeah, when, Isn't when you that get to that point, okay, when, when you say the hell with the truth, I'm going to win one way or the other. Then what happens? Everything goes out the window. Of course.
2: But but then both sides claim that that's what they're doing. Well, you know, my version of events is the truth. And the other person is like, well, no, my version of the the events is the truth. And then so how do you decide as an independent third party, well, which one has greater credibility or which one is more likely to be true than the other?
3: Which one has the evidence? Exactly. Okay, it's the evidence. All right, and putting it together in a logical manner, not, not, an emotional manner.
1: Let's not get too emotional over this, Don Ecker. With Gina and Randall, you're in the, the Paracast.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: You see, we got a chorus in our last one. Don Ecker, we hate to interrupt you, but the gods of commercials from ancient times intervene go ahead please.
3: So we're back
1: We are back sir. Well you're sure now you're sure we're back. We are back.
3: okay. Whereas that someone once said I'll be right back. I'll be back and we're back. So anyway, to get back to what I was saying before we had to go to break today in the United States, unfortunately, This is now, and I'm not getting into specifics, but the divide between people today is probably as great and filled with acrimony since the spring of 1861 when the Civil War started. One reason is that people, today have lost the ability to have a reasoned debate. All right. There is no reasoned debate for years. That was the thing about UFOs. Okay. The UFO topic and other subjects in that basic genre. All right. I've tried to have reasoned debates with skeptics uh over the UFO thing. I will never forget January of nineteen ninety five. I am one of those guys that like to bring all points of view on my show. And somebody that I had because he was at the time the premier skeptic was Philip J. Class, okay, who has since left this earthly plane a number of years ago. But class was the premier UFO skeptic around. Carry on. I had him on this particular evening, and we were talking about a lot of things. And, of course, Roswell was obviously, it was a big story at the time. And he tried to suggest that Major Jesse Marcel claimed that the Roswell debris that he examined, was actually only because some newspaper had offered a $3,000 reward for anybody that could provide proof of a UFO. And that's why Marcel claimed that this was otherworldly debris. Well, I jumped and I said, what was the newspaper? When did this happen? Where did this take place at? I mean, just reasonable questions, right? Class didn't know, and he got embarrassed. And then he said, if you keep interrupting me, I am going to hang up the phone. So so I said, okay, Phil, go ahead. So, you know, he kept blathering, and then we hit the big one, the July-August 1952 overflights of Washington, D.C., Phil started saying, well, now if these UFOs were really thought to be maybe a security threat, the Air Force, the Army, the Navy would have brought in airplanes from every part of the country. And I said, they couldn't, Phil. Well, as it was, they had to fly him in from Dover, Delaware, and it took almost an hour to get, and I said, Phil, they couldn't, they couldn't bring him in to D.C. All the airfields there, the military airfields were undergoing resurfacing. That was a pretty ballsy thing on my part to say, how did I know that? Because I had talked to the civilian consultant to Project Blue Book. Al will chop. He was the press liaison from the military to the news organizations around the world. Big, big guy. He was a big guy at the time. He was a big supporting player in major Donald Kehoe's books, by the way. Yeah. When I said that, and I, I caused him to blow up. <laughs> he began yelling a profanity. Boom. Uh, you know what the other word is? And I said, Phil, Phil, you're on the radio. I don't care. That's bow. And you know, he did it again and f- <laughs> And I said, Phil, I'm, I'm, I'm just shocked. I'm really shocked that you would talk like that on my radio show. All right. Good night. Click. <laughs> uh my whole point about this was trying to have a reasoned logical debate sans the emotionalism and you can't do it with UFOs. You can't do it with politics. You can't do it with religion or any other provocative subject. There's no way to bridge the, the divide today.
2: Well, it seems like, yeah, everything is sold on an emotional reaction. That our, choice of what we believe, what we buy, what we prefer tends to be an emotional one more than a reasoned one in just about every case. And we are the poorer for it, I might add. If something doesn't agree with whoever happens to be in power at the time, then that's well, then it's fake news. Absolutely. People really, if, if there's some people that know better and can get around it and take the time to do a little bit of their own homework, like you do. You've got the detective instinct. You don't just listen to the initial story and assume it's true just because somebody who seems to be in a position of authority might have told it. You get in there and you check out people's backgrounds and try to determine what the facts are. That's what we really need in the field if we're going to have anyone step in and take the place of some of the people that have been lost. I don't think we need, like you're saying, to have more emotion in the field and more beliefs and more turf protection. We we need people who can cooperate to try to figure out what is really
3: going on. Well looking looking at it from that standpoint, now here here's something that I've railed against for for years. Most people in the that call themselves UFO researchers, okay, have no formal Training For the most part, they have no formal training in uh, investigation, in the scientific principles. And, well, Vito Sicari, the interview that, that we talked about earlier, okay, is a perfect case in point. When his story first started to surface, and this was in the 93-94 time frame. He had allied himself with a MUFON group down in Houston that was basically going to retrace all his steps to verify his story and hopefully get back to that photographic archive and see basically what was down there.
1: Didn't want to bring this up earlier in the discussion, but I did meet Philip Klass. Once or twice over the years, we had very, very brief conversations. I didn't get much of a sense of him other than what he wrote and what I heard about him. More to come with Gene Randall and Don Ecker. You're in
3: the Paracast.
11: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
9: USA Radio News
5: with Wendy King. Federal investigators have identified two .45 caliber guns used in the shooting at a Virginia Beach Municipal Building that left 12 people dead. Virginia Governor Ralph Northam.
15: I'm a doctor. I served in Desert Storm. I have been in situations such as this, and it was important to me to go to our hospitals and, and thank the doctors, the nurses, and the staff. And I can let you know, I also had the opportunity to speak with some of the families. They send their thanks for the heroic deeds that were performed yesterday, and I want to assure
5: you that they are all being well cared for. ATF Special Agent Ashawn Benedict. At
12: this time, we're also working with our law enforcement partners to look at the ballistics from the weapons uh, discharge and also uh, our ballistic network of NIBIN to see if they correspond
5: with any other shootings. This is USA Radio News. What does Meals on
10: Wheels do? They deliver meals and smiles to homebound seniors. But Meals on Wheels does something else. They turn a volunteer's lunch break into a meaningful experience.
14: As small and as simple as the relationship is between a volunteer and a client of Meals on Wheels, it's really so impactful. I never thought that five minutes could make so much difference in the lives of two people, but it has. Drop
10: off a warm meal and get more than you expect. Volunteer at org. That's Lunch.org. Brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council.
0: What?
10: Oh, these pains, my neck, my back, shoulders. I've got to get some relief.
9: Stress from everyday life, past injuries, or surgeries can cause inflammation that leads to pain. But you don't want to take another pill.
10: There's an easier, healthier way, right?
9: Yes, with hot or cold therapy products at sunshine-pillows.com.
10: Pillows? Pillows? For my aches and pains?
9: Oh, not just pillows. -pillows Sunshine-pillows.com has the best selection of custom heated neck wraps and heated neck pillows, plus travel pillows. Microwavable body heating wraps, and more. It's all available to you online. Finally, stress relief with no drugs. Right, and now you can buy any select combo up to $150 and get 30% off. Just use this promo code SAVE30 when you click sunshine pillows.com. Save 30% when you spend up to $150 on any select combo. Use promo code SAVE30 sunshine pillows.com. Your complete line of therapeutic pillows and pads
3: this is jerome clark
13: author of the ufo encyclopedia and other books you're listening to the Paracast.
2: yeah so don we were just talking about the attitude of ufo investigators and who has credentials and who doesn't uh, not long ago we had a guest greg lawson who Dubs himself the paranormal investigator who has a history of, uh, investigative, uh, service, uh, in law enforcement. So, uh, people like him, I think you might, uh, agree, deserve maybe some credibility in the
3: field. Well, sure, but it's like anything else. It depends upon how they conduct their work. Okay. Now, what I was, what I was basically saying before we had to go to break is that we've got, uh, This case with Vito Sicari. He had allied himself with a group of MUFON people down in Houston that was intending to retrace all his steps with Lester Howells to basically verify his story. All right. So when you're in the middle of an investigation, you've got it's a must. There's no deviation. You've got to keep it quiet and confidential and professional investigators, police officers, uh military investigators, etc. government investigators, they know this, all right? But you had a bunch of amateurs. And somebody within that group, as they were getting started, shot their mouth off about what they were doing. And the second they did that, and they, they even, I believe, and I'm going strictly from memory now, they had some type of publication that they published every month or so, even wrote an article about what they were doing well. The second you do that, what did you do? You warned the people that you were coming to see that you were coming to see them. And they had all the time in the world to cover up, to hide stuff, whatever. And they shot it down from the get-go before they even really got started because somebody couldn't keep their mouth shut. Now, that's always been a problem with the amateurs in the UFO field. They come across what appears initially to be an interesting story. They begin touting the story before they have their investigation done, before they go out, they talk to the witnesses or they examine the site, whatever the case may be. All right. What does that do? Well, that shoots any potential credibility you ever may have had right down the toilet. Boom, it's gone. It's done. It's over. And the reason is people don't know how to investigate. Well, not many people
2: and well, I guess if you're in Mufon, they have a pretty good UFO investigators handbook there. It's uh, reviewed through that and it seems pretty thorough and pretty reasonable. Have you had a chance to check it out yourself? Years ago, yeah. Yeah, I mean, at least they make an effort. In some but cases, do they. Well, do yeah, they? I guess it depends. Do I they guess it really? Depends. Yeah, which, which investigator you get, I guess, is the real question there. But because I've seen, I've seen some real bad examples there too. But still, I mean, if we have someone who is, say, academically credentialed but has no ufology background, they can mess it up just as bad as somebody who's interested in UFOs and maybe knows a lot about them but has no investigative background.
3: Well, that's why you then bring in the experts, okay? For example, let's say you're examining a case that happened in the XYZ part of state, whatever. You have the academic background, and you have an interest, and you know what you want to try to discover, but you don't know how to go about it. So what would you do? What would a reasonable person do?
2: Bring in the experts, just like you're saying. Find someone. Well, my suggestion is to, if you're going to have science enter into ufology, have it be at arm's length from ufology. Don't bring in an, another ufologist, because then it's there's bias involved. Bring in someone who's independent and knows what they're talking about, like they did with Hynek as an astronomer, for example.
3: Well, okay. Uh Okay, let's talk about Jay Allen. Jay Allen Hynek was the Air Force's civilian astronomy consultant to Project Blue Book, right? Right. And Jay Allen Hynek began his work with the Air Force when? The early 50s, right? Um,
1: let's see here. It, it is
3: the early 50s, the
1: early days of Project Blue Book, definitely.
3: Okay, go ahead. Now.
1: 1952.
3: Right. So, what did the Air Force tell Annie he would be doing? He would be going out to investigate these seemingly inexplicable cases, and he was doing it for his government. And they were paying J. Allen Hynek what? About five grand a year. Now, let me tell you what. In 1952, 53, five grand a year to consult was a healthy chunk of money. All right. It was pretty good.
2: Yeah. You could buy two or three cars for that back in those days. Right.
1: Brand new ones.
3: And that didn't even have anything to do with his day job.
1: Let me tell everybody what we're talking about here. $5,000 in 1952. In 2019, $47,402.45, that's just about the mean family income in the U.S., meaning that
3: with his day job, he'd be doing quite well. Yes. Now, how did he keep that job and not manage to piss anybody off so they would basically get rid of him and bring somebody else in? That was a sweet spot, boy. And not only did you get the five grand a year, you got all the quote, unquote, positive publicity, right? You betcha. And they had that scintilla of this is Dr. J. Allen Heine Air Force consultant. Well, you don't want to upset the big boys upstairs, do you? And even James McDonald. Who was a an atmospheric physicist from the University of Arizona, doctor? Okay, who was infamously famous in the UFO field? Said that Dr. J. Allen Hynek was a quote unquote very timid man. So Hynek was not going to upset the apple cart, and the Air Force, even though it was unjustified made heinick look like a boob in 1966 during the hillsdale michigan ufo sightings at that uh, college campus when he came out with that ludicrous ridiculous you know suggestion that uh, those ufos could have conceivably been swamp gas, swamp gas. yeah and, the whole
2: swamp and gas thing
3: the entire nation convulsed in belly laughs okay Heineck was humiliated, and it wasn't too long after that Heineck finally said, I'm hanging up my UFO spurs.
1: Now, in all fairness to Dr. Heineck, he did leave the Air Force, and he got involved setting up the Center for UFO Studies and became a very, very strong advocate for UFO reality. We'll have a final segment with Don Ecker coming right up. I want to remind you that we have... That special segment we've been doing on After the Paracast with William Puckett, latest UFO sightings. Of course, he is a skilled investigator and atmospheric scientist. You'll want to hear that. You have to join, though, the Paracast Plus to get it. For more information, go to plus.theparacast.com. Once again, that's plus.theparacast.com. We have Don Ecker. We have Gene Steinberg. We have the one and only Jay Randall Murphy. You're in The Paracast.
11: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNLive.com today.
1: As you know, neighbors, web hosting can be pretty cheap, but not all hosting is the same. DreamHost wins best of awards year after year. You get unlimited disk space, unlimited bandwidth, and even the low-cost plans put your sites on high-performance SSDs. Want to know more about what DreamHost has to offer? Go to technightowl.com/host. Once again, that's technightowl.com/host.
6: Fellow patriots, my name is Todd Savage, founder of BlackRifleRealEstate.com. Like you, I was a prisoner of the Alt-Left Sanctuary State until one day I chose to leave my family to freedom. Today we live on a sustainable 20-acre homestead where we shoot, hunt, garden, and homeschool our children without the tyranny of the nanny state looking over us. If you're ready to flee the city to the freedom of Idaho or Montana, our Black Rifle Real Estate team is here to help. Go to BlackRifleRealEstate.com. That's BlackRifleRealEstate.com.
23: If you feel you've been lied to, pressured, or misled into buying your timeshare, you have the right to cancel completely. This is Steve Sanchez, and I'd like to introduce you to Wesley Financial Group, the leading top-rated timeshare cancellation company in the country. That's right, no more excessive fees or lifetime commitments that make you feel like you're serving a prison sentence. Founded by CEO Chuck McDowell, a pioneer in the industry who went into federal court and won against the largest timeshare resort company in the world just to help you get out of your timeshare. Too good to be true? No. Countless testimonials, and the highest ratings from the Better Business Bureau make Wesley Financial Group the real deal, and their money-back guarantee they put in writing makes them the Steve Sanchez choice for successfully canceling your timeshare guaranteed. To get their free information kit, call 1-800-475-1919. That's 1-800-475-1919, or visit them at timesharecancellations.com. That's 1-800-475-1919.
14: hey this is marie d jones the author of this book is from the future and you are listening to the paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio
1: final segment don Eckert. let's kind of move into a sum up here With what's been going on, the New York Times is taking UFOs seriously. The Washington Post is taking UFOs seriously. Saw an article there just a few days ago. All this being equal. And that's a shocker, I might add. Absolutely. Are we
3: near anything new or any new developments in getting the word out? Well, that seems to be the thread running through UFOdom that, There's a new day dawning in UFO research. I've been around just long enough. I got to tell you, I am still and probably always skeptical. Now, we will see, I guess, whether uh, my skepticism that uh, there's a new day dawning, whether it's justified or not. But I wouldn't bet the uh, next month's house payment on it, Gene. Okay. Well, I don't own a
1: house, so I just, just have to worry about the next month's rent payment. And even though they're going up in Arizona, I wouldn't even bet anything on that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's been this way too many times. Look, you know, you know this story. I've told this story here before. Let me preface it by saying that in the years that I've been involved in this field, there were two types of cases that always interested me. Not that the other ones didn't, but these were the ones that really gave me that little bit of a thrill, okay? And those cases were cases involving the military, our military and cases that were involved with near-Earth and outer space cases. And we've had those, too. Now, in 92, I broke on national TV, on NBC, and then on CNN, on Larry King Live, what I at the time thought was one of the most astounding cases ever. And that was the case that took place with the Space Shuttle STS-48, the STS-48 case. During that incident, the shuttle was above New Zealand and Australia. It was shooting a live stream from a camera mounted to the shuttle down to the Earth. As the thing started, they were above Australia. You could see that there were lightning strikes happening beneath the shuttle over Australia. Uh, there was big storm going on. When suddenly this unknown, inexplicable object rose above the limb of the earth, and when it did, off screen, you couldn't see where it came from, but there was a brilliant flash of light and something streaked past the shuttle directly at this object, which immediately took a violent, evasive maneuver and shot out into space. What did we seemingly observe? What we saw was a NASA mission filming a UFO rising above the planet, something appearing to shoot at it, it taking violent, evasive maneuvers and flying off into space. And then incidentally, it circled back around. If you kept watching, you saw that. Was I the only one suggesting that something unseemly happened? No. As I later found out, and it's a hell of a story, Dr. Bruce McAbee, who at the time Was a naval optical physicist and another guy, okay, who was a NASA contractor, went to the chairman of the science subcommittee, telling him they were fearful that a shooting war had started in outer space. Nobody knew this at the time. When I went on Larry King Live, Okay, the the show then was a worldwide program. It was broadcast in CNN all around the globe in real time. And King took calls, if he had time, near the end of the show. So we're talking about a worldwide audience. I'm on there. I'm debating Dr. James Oberg, another NASA contract scientist who tried to poo-poo the whole thing. The other guy that was with Maccabee was a fellow by the name of Vincent DiPietro. He was a he was an engineer, was working as a contractor for NASA. King only took two calls. One of the calls was from another NASA contractor. And then DiPietro called the show, trying to dismiss this. The guy that had gone to see the subcommittee chairman telling him that he was afraid that there was a a space war brewing. I was convinced that after all these years, there would be enough interest generated in the media that they would at least follow up on this after the program. You know how many calls we got at UFO magazine about that story, guys? Do you know how how many? Zero. Oh, well zero calls Although I did have a call from a reporter back there who had been, well, he had been a writer for UFO magazine. He had an interest in it, uh, in the subject, but he used his pseudonym because he, he worked occasionally on defense publications. He called me up, a, oh, shortly after the show. And he said, so how many people we heard from Don? And I said, none. He said, really? He said, well, I don't know if this will make you feel good or not, but you managed to piss off a lot of people at the Pentagon. (laughs) And I said, what? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. You had some very disturbed people over there, which I, I wouldn't have known one way or the other. We never heard a thing. And then he said, by the way, you know that live feed that came down from the shuttle? Yeah. Well, they've encrypted it. So anything you see from this point forward will be not in real time. It will be vetted or in time delay. I guess that's my, my claim to fame. Don
1: Ecker, please tell our listeners if they want to know more about all the many, many thousands and millions of things you do, where do they go?
3: Well, the best place, I guess, uh, would be Facebook. I have my personal page up there. Don Ecker, and uh, then also my radio show, which airs both Friday and Saturday evenings, beginning at 5 p.m. Pacific time and 8 o'clock Eastern on KGRARadio.com. We're here, of course, on GCN, and I want to make a quick announcement. Because
1: of the way the show is distributed online or via satellite, you may not be able to hear this show on some stations that carried it before. It'll be on new stations. If you have difficulty hearing the PowerCast, simply subscribe in iTunes. That's all. Or you go to thepowercast.com where you can download every single, day one, February 28th, 2006, every single episode, every appearance of Don Ecker. And other guests. too. We have a few other guests along the way. But we also offer... An ad-free version of the PowerCast, and to do that, you got to join the PowerCast Plus. It's a modest subscription rate, starting at a dollar forty-nine a week. And we offer monthly, annual, lifetime, with five-year subscriptions in lifetime. We give you free stuff. Who doesn't want free stuff? I don't see any hands raised. Okay, no virtual hands being raised there. Okay. To get more information, go to plus.theparacast.com, plus.theparacast.com. And one more thing, as I used to say at Apple Incorporated Media Events, we offer the After the Paracast podcast. It's uncensored. It's uninterrupted. You never know what's going to happen next. And frankly, neighbors, we don't either. Because it can get really, really fascinating. Don Ecker, thank you for joining us this week on The Paracast.
3: You are welcome, and thank you for the invitation.
11: The
0: Paracast, featuring Gene Steinberg and Christopher O'Brien, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in The
5: Paracast.